Well, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Gospel of John, chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5, and considering the love of Christ, and may God, the Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds in the knowledge of His love. John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, give attention to God's holy word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice, O Lord, that you have freely offered to us the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, and we thank you that the work of salvation by which Christ is applied to us is a work of no one less than the Holy Spirit. And it is for that Holy Spirit's work that we pray this afternoon that you would enlighten our hearts, help us to see our sin and misery, and help us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ freely offered to us in these verses, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a land surveyor, we uh, would use tape measures to measure the things that we had to measure. And we had a tape measure, it's like most of the tape measures that you've seen, it's Uh, you know, fits on your belt. It's about 25 feet long, and you can pull it out and measure what you need to measure. But if you're you're not aware of what an engineer's tape measure looks like, you you could be deceived when you use an engineer's tape measure, because if you pull out the tape measure that we used, an engineering tape measure, you'll, you'll pull it out, and it goes to one foot, but then you notice that the numbers before the one foot mark go from one to nine. Now, if you know anything about feet, feet are broken up into inches. So it should be one to 11. That's a carpenter's tape measure. Engineers tape measures, feet are broken into tenths. And so when an engineer measures something, he measures it uh, by feet and then 0.4 or three feet, 0.7. Engineers do things in tenths of a foot. Now, this illustration, I hope, is, is going to help us think that if you, if you don't have the right measure, if you don't have the right way to measure things, you can't really know what you're doing. One of the difficulties we had in the engineering department was, you know, architects would come up with their plans, and some of you who are in the construction trades know this, architects do their plans based on feet, inches, and fractions of an inch. So this wall should be 12 feet, three and a quarter inches, something like that. Well, the architects draw up their plans. When it gets to the engineer, all that has to be translated into tenths of a foot so that the engineers can actually do what they need to do. Likewise, in the exploration of outer space, 
It wasn't until the telescope was invented that we could accurately see, we could accurately measure what is really going on in outer space. Perhaps some of you have seen the latest images that come from the, uh, the, the latest telescope they've developed. They can see deep, deep into space. And because they have the right measurement, they're able to measure what's actually going on, they're able to grasp the magnitude of the starry heavens that God has made. Nobody could have seen this. Nobody could have known the sheer magnitude of the universe until you had the right measuring stick. Well, likewise with the love of Christ. Christ's love is a marvelous thing. It is God's gift to mankind that he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But the magnitude of the love of Christ has to be measured according to the right measuring stick. To appreciate the love that Christ has given to us, the love that John talks about in this passage, you have to measure it according to the right ruler. And what we're going to see in this passage is that the glory of the love of Christ can only be measured by the glory of his work and the glory of his person. The glory of the love of Christ can only be measured by the glory of his work and the glory of his person. I I want us to really take this seriously this afternoon. I know we've had lunch and we're getting a little, little sleepy. It's okay. But, but perk up for this because sometimes when we think about the love of Christ, we, we tend to think about it in reference to, we measure it by the benefits that we receive. Those benefits are great. Those benefits are good. Th- those benefits are uh, astounding for us. The forgiveness of sins, love, joy, peace, fellowship with our brothers and sisters, all of those are benefits of the love of Christ. But to really appreciate the magnitude of the love of Christ, to to begin to to get our hands around the love of Christ, we have to measure it by the glory of his person and work. One last exhortation to you to, to maybe emphasize the importance of this topic. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talks about the ministry of preaching And he begins to pray for the church. He says, it's for this reason that I bow my knees to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would strengthen you in the inner man by his spirit. That Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. So that you can understand the breadth, depth, height, and width of the love of Christ. Paul's prayer for the church is that they would begin to Uh, approach measuring the love of Christ rightly, and as you measure the love of Christ, you will be filled with all the fullness of God. And so now let's look at what John says about measuring the love of Christ. He begins with the glory of his work in verse 1. By the way, the the outline is, verse 1 is the glory of Christ's work, verse 2 and 3 is the glory of his person, and verse 4 and 5 is the glory of his love. Verse 1 is the glory of his work. Verses 2 and 3 is the glory of his person. Verses 4 and 5 is the glory of his love. And so we begin, pardon me, in verse 1. 
Notice that in verse 1, John has in mind the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great work of the Lord Jesus is his death on the cross. And there's several clues in verse 1 that lead us to think about his death. First, this is during the peace of uh, the, the uh, peace, <laughs> the feast of the Passover. John says, before the feast of the Passover. The Passover was the great sacrament of the Old Testament. It was a remembrance of what Moses did in Egypt. The lamb was sacrificed, and by the blood of the lamb, Israel was spared. Well, this feast of the Passover is now coming up, and at this feast of the Passover, the sacramental sign, the lamb that was slain, and the meal that they're about to enjoy is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is perhaps hard for us to, to understand, but just as our sacrament is a sign and seal of an invisible reality, throughout the whole history of the Old Testament, the sacrament of Passover was a visible sign of something that had not yet happened. It was a remembrance of what God did in Egypt, but it was pointing forward to the death of Christ. It was pointing forward to Christ shedding his blood so that the people would be saved. I think John, uh, John, more so than some of the other authors of the Gospels, has this sacramental idea in mind. You remember that it's in John's Gospel, the only Gospel where John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think throughout John's Gospel, this Passover symbolism his gospel is pregnant with this idea. And so now it's before the feast of the Passover. Notice also what it says about Jesus. He knew that his hour had come. This hour that Jesus knows is coming, it's his hour. This is the hour that's referred to in chapter 12 at several points. Verse 23, just as an example. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now in chapter 13, that hour is right at the door. This is the hour of his death, when, when he's coming to perform the great work that he was sent to perform. Earlier on in John chapter 6, Christ feeds the 5,000, and the people want to make him a king by force. John records for us that Jesus escaped because his hour had not yet come. Well, now the hour of his death is here. And what John focuses on in this work is not so much the pain of the cross, the shame of the cross, the judgment of the cross, but he focuses on the glory of the cross. That's what he says next. It's the feast of the Passover, the hour has come, and then Jesus knows that he should depart from this world and go to the Father. In the death of Christ, he accomplishes our redemption. In the death of Christ, he pays for all of our sins, but the death of Christ was not the end or the, the final act of the work of Christ. The final act of the work of Christ was the ascension. It was him returning back to the Father to uh, bring all of his people into glory with him. And so Christ is thinking about his work, and he's thinking about the glory of his work and the glory that shall follow. This is what's in Christ's mind. This is what's going on. And now he says, 
knowing these things about his work, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John puts this final comment in verse 1, not only setting the scene for the rest of the chapter, but also setting the scene for the work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the whole motivation for why Christ did what he did is because he loved you. His whole motivation to uh, fulfill the symbolism of the Passover, to come to the hour in which he should be glorified, his whole reason for entering into the world, leaving the world through death, and returning to the Father was because of his love for his own. There was no reason for Christ to do what he did. He did not need to do any of this. He did not need to die. He didn't need to rise again. He did not need to go back to the Father. Because Christ in himself was perfectly satisfied. And yet, he does these things. He does these things out of love for his own. You notice also it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's another sort of aspect to this that the commentators bring out here. The, the Passover is, is at hand. Christ knows that his hour is coming. He knows that he's going to be leaving the world. In other words, Christ knows he's about to die. He knows that his hour of death is coming. Earlier on in chapter 12, he said, my soul is greatly troubled because the hour is upon me. Death is at the door. He also knows what kind of death he's about to face. Now, I don't know if you have ever had to face surgery. Perhaps you've had to face a very difficult situation, a difficult conversation. I know some here are veterans. You've had to face being shipped off to a war zone. You these things are coming in, 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 in our lives, they're appointed, and as the day approaches, that seems to be the only thing that fills our mind. We're, we're thinking about, I've got to go do this. This is going to be hard. This is going to be painful. This is going to be scary. And our thoughts are filled with how we are going to deal with it. What John is telling us is that when these thoughts were filling the mind of Christ, he was thinking about his own. He was loving his people. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about what he's going to suffer. He's thinking about his love for his own. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so this is the glory of the work of Christ. John then moves on to speak about the glory of his person. And there's a couple of things to notice in verses 2 and 3. First off, we have a, a bit of a mistranslation here. In the morning, I, I went after the ESV. Here, the New King James and the King James are a little bit off. Verse 2 says, and supper being ended. That's New King James and King James. The ESV says something to the effect of supper having begun or during supper while supper was going on. That's a better translation of this. The, the Greek that John uses here is... is it's hard to capture in English, but, but what it means is um, with supper having been started. It's literally what the Greek means, but that's awkward in English. So the best way to understand this is that while supper was going on, it's important to understand this in the context because if you look at verse 26, verse 26, 
Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. If verse 2 means supper was already over, verse 26 doesn't make any sense. But if we understand that this is while supper was going on, the whole exchange here is during the meal. Verse 26 makes sense. That would happen in the context of a, of a supper. And so this is happening at the beginning of the supper. Uh, it's happening, at the, as I said, it's at the beginning of the Passover meal. Now, in Jewish custom, when you sat down for the Passover meal, the, the seating arrangement would be according to rank, so to speak. There would be a master of the feast, and then all of his disciples or all of his friends would be seated in a regular order around him. In the Jewish ceremony that was dominant at this time, the master of the feast, at this point in the meal, would wash the hands of all of his guests. This was a symbolic act showing that he's the master of the feast and he's serving his people. That's when Christ does this. But we're going to see that Christ transforms this ceremony to show his love for his disciples, but that's coming a little bit later. So this is at the beginning of the meal. Christ is the master of this feast. He's the head of this company. Notice what else John says. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, it's important that John notes it's the devil who has done this. You know, college football season has started, and uh, as a fan of college football and some of my cousins and friends, we debate college football rankings. Sometimes they are irrational, at least we think so. But if you know anything about college football rankings, the the way that the teams are ranked, one of the factors they take into account is called strength of schedule. And so a team, for instance, uh, UGA, if they play a bunch of SEC teams, which are all very good teams, they get ranked higher because their opponent was better. Versus, say, Liberty University that doesn't play as many strong teams, no offense to any Liberty students that may still be here, they don't play a lot of strong teams, so they don't get ranked as high as, say, Alabama or Georgia. Now, this is the reason I bring this up, is notice the glory of Christ's person is seen in the strength of the opponent that faces him. It's the devil that seduces Judas to betray him. It's the strongest enemy that has ever been created. It's the one being who is stronger than all of the angels and all of the men, but he's not stronger than Christ. The devil is the one who betrayed, uh, who seduced Judas to do this, and it's by the strength of schedule, so to speak, that the glory of Christ's person is elevated. Think also back to the temptation in the wilderness. Remember what the devil tempts Jesus with. The devil tempts Jesus and asks him the question, if you are the Son of God, do this, that, and the other. When the devil came to tempt Jesus, it was a temptation that centered around his person, not so much his work. Now, they're both intimately connected, but when the devil tempted him, he was tempting him based on his person. If you really are the person that you say you are, do all these things. If you really are the Son of God, do these other things. So John tells us the devil seduced Judas to do this. 
The second thing he tells us about what Jesus knows, and this again goes to his person. Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, and then verse 4 is going to pick up the next part of our passage, but notice that verse 3 is about his person. All things are given into his hands, and he's returning to God. This is a reference to the rights or the authority that Jesus has as the incarnate Messiah. When John says Jesus knows all things have been given into his hands, he's, he's essentially saying the same thing Matthew says in chapter 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is a reference to Christ's person as the incarnate Messiah. A couple of passages that, that support this. You can look at Colossians 1, 15. Look, look at that one. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Paul is speaking about the glory of our salvation in Christ, and in this section, he speaks about the glory of Christ's person, and what it is that makes him the glorious person that he is. He says at first, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn means that he has the right of ownership. He owns it all. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the church, uh, the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ has been given all things into his hands because of who he is. He is the person of the Son of the Father. And so Christ knows that all things have been given into his hands. He also knows that he came from God and he's going to God. Now, there's an important thing to notice here about how John phrases these things. Verse 1, it might sound like that John is repeating himself in verse 3. Verse 1, he said that he's leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 3, it says he came from God and is returning to God. Sounds like he's repeating himself, but there's a subtle difference that you need to pay attention to. In verse 1, he's leaving the world and going to the Father. This is part of Christ's work as mediator. This is a reference to his ascension as the son of David, the incarnate mediator. Uh, Luke 25, 24, 25, and 26. Luke 24, 25, and 26. Christ says this on the road to Emmaus to the disciples. The disciples don't understand what's going on. Christ has to open their mind, and he says to them this. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Listen carefully. 
Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Notice that the sufferings and entering into the glory, leaving the world and going to the Father, are part of the work of Christ, the Messiah, the mediator. So when John says he's leaving the world and going to the Father, he's referring to the work of Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 8 all say the same thing if you want to look them up this afternoon. Going back to John 13, what John is saying in verse 3, he came from God and is going back to God, is an expression not of his work as the mediator, it's an expression referring to his person as the only begotten Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He is the only begotten one. He came from God. He is uniquely the only one that comes out of God as the only begotten. Because he is the only begotten, his proper place, the the only place that's appropriate for him is to be returned back to God. Now, we're bumping up against some of the mysteries that angels desire to look into here. As the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ in His divine nature was never separate from the Father. That's impossible to divide the Trinity like that. As the incarnate Son of God, we can say in the language of Scripture that the Son of God came down to the world, the Son of God was in the world, the Son of God departed from the world and returned to God in heaven. We have to say it that way because that's how Scripture says it, but understand there's some mysteries surrounding What's going on here? And so what John is saying is is that as the second person of the Trinity, it's proper for him to return back to where he belongs, at the right hand of the Father. Now consider who this is that John is writing about. This is the one who was appointed in all the works of the prophets. From Moses all the way to Zechariah who was slain between the altar and the holy place. All of the prophets have prophesied of this hour. The the eternal decree of the Almighty God was all organized for this very hour. The work that the Son of God is about to do is fulfilling all the signs and types of the Old Testament. And the Son of God who's going to perform this great work is going to ascend back to the Father who sent him. He's going to inherit authority over all things. Not only is his work glorious, but his person is glorious too. The only one that contend with him is the devil himself. The, um, uh, he's the only one that contend with him. And he is, properly speaking, God Almighty equal with the Father. This is the person that John is writing about. The glory of his work and the glory of his person. Now, we're ready to talk about washing feet. Now we're ready to talk about what Christ actually does. Now we're ready to appreciate how much love God has shown you by sending his only begotten son to die on the cross. And that's where John turns to now in verses 4 and 5. It was this one who came from God and is going back to God, who rose from supper, 
laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. I, I think there's a helpful parallel to understand what's happening here in the washing of the feet. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 6. In the context, Paul's exhorting the Philippians to be humble and to love one another. And verse 5, he says, you need to do this because this is what Christ did. You need to have this mindset because this was the mindset of Christ. Notice how Paul describes this mindset in verse 6. Who, Christ Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Christ Jesus, who came from God and was returning to God. Christ Jesus, into whose hands everything had been committed. Christ Jesus, who was leaving the world and going back to the Father. This Christ Jesus, who is equal with God in everything, did not consider his dignity as God something to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He laid aside his garments and clothed himself with a towel. He, as it were, laid aside his divine glory and took upon himself human nature. What John is saying in chapter 13 is a, 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 a visual object lesson of the theology here. Christ, who is the master of the Passover feast, gets up from supper, takes off his robe, and puts on the clothing of a slave. He girds himself with a towel. He laid himself, uh, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Then John goes to talk about the cross, but what John is showing us in the washing of the feet is that Christ humbled himself to love his people. Notice, going back to John 13, he lays off his outer garment, he takes a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, remember what I said about the Jewish ceremony with the Passover meal. The master of the feast would wash their hands. He would go and wash their hands symbolically. Uh, it, the way it worked is that it, that represented his authority over them. He's washing their hands. Christ transforms this ceremony and begins to wash their feet the dirtiest part of your body in this culture. They wore sandals. Some might have been barefoot. It's a very dusty place. They walked everywhere. Their feet were nasty. And Christ humbles himself, takes up a towel, begins to wash their feet, and to wipe the towel, uh, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. You know, if you and I wash one another's feet... That can be a sign of love. That can be a sign of my care for you. But I'm nobody necessarily special. Some of you are more special than me, but none of us are really that special. None of us are that glorious in our person. None of us are going to perform a work the magnitude of which Christ performed. And what John is telling us is that the way you understand the love of Christ is by considering the height from which he humbled himself. 
far above all created power and glory. This one came down, took on human flesh, and got a wash rag and washed the feet of sinners. This is the love of Christ. This is what God has done for you. That's the magnitude of what God has done. You measure it by the glory of Christ, his person and his work. And that's what John gives to us. Notice also, in verse 1, Christ, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This love of Christ never changes for his people. This love of Christ does not fluctuate with your love to him. He loved his own who were in the world, and he's going to love them to the end. He loved them by washing their feet. He loved them by going to the cross. He loved them by going to the Father. And he's going to love them by returning and receiving you to himself. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Be filled with the love of Christ, brothers and sisters. Christ loves you more than you can imagine. Because the love of Christ is equal to the greatness of his person. This is why... Paul the Apostle told us, I preach nothing to you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you know Christ, you know the Father. And in knowing Christ and knowing the Father, knowing the love of Christ and knowing the love of the Father, you will be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what John gives to us here. And that's what John teaches us about the love of Christ. One, one comment and then we'll land this. It's interesting, John is the only one that doesn't record the Lord's Supper being instituted. We're we're at that point now. This is the Passover meal where it should happen. All the other evangelists record the Lord's Supper. John doesn't. And I think part of the reason John doesn't do that is by the time John writes this gospel, the other three have been in existence for a while. The, The church has been established. People understand the Lord's Supper. He doesn't need to go back over that material. But what John thought that the church did need, what what John thought the church needed to be retaught about, is not the ceremony of the Lord's Supper and the symbolism of the bread and the wine, but the love of Christ that was displayed at the supper. The, The love that God gave to his people through the sacrifice of Christ, John says, that's what I remember from the supper. And that's what God's people need to hear. It's the love of Christ given to us. Remember, we measure the love of Christ not by our own foggy perception. We don't measure the love of Christ by how we perceive things. If you and I go out and look at the night sky, we might see some interesting things. You might see the the Big Dipper. If you're in the right place, you might see the Milky Way. If you go downtown, you might not see as much. Oftentimes, that's how we perceive the love of God, isn't it? Sometimes we can see it clear as day. Other times, the the lights of this world, the cares of this life, we look at the night sky and it all looks black. Where did God's love go? We don't measure the love of God by our perceptions. We measure the love of God by the glory of the person of Christ. And we measure it by what he has done. This is what all the apostles speak about in their letters. Paul writing in Romans 5 verse 8. 
God displayed his love towards us in that Christ died for sinners. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, he says, This is love, that God sent his only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And of course, John 3.16 in this gospel, John writes and says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. If you want to know the love of God, look to the Lord Jesus Christ, consider his glory, the glory of his work, the glory of his person, and then his love will be glorious indeed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of the Son of God that's been given to us. We thank you for your love as our Heavenly Father, electing us and bringing us into union with the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the love of the Holy Spirit, who by the power and the merits of Christ has worked faith in us. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us ever and always to glory in the love of Christ, for in the love of Christ we know you. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.